So Andy, uh, reading Jared's book, looking back into the uh, early and mid and late 20th century, I'm back on my revanchist shit, dude. I'm back on my bring back pre-progressive era machine politics in New York City. A brighter time, a time of wonderment and joy and abundance for the working class when you can make an entire career by knowing a guy who knows a guy. Mm -hmm. You can have like a shitty crappy office somewhere you do maybe three hours of work a week you get like not a lot of money working for the city but you get a decent amount and you just sail out for like to like you're 55 years old and you take a retirement you just disappear from history that kind of like that that moment that machine politics corruption municipal governance moment i think is something if we're gonna have capitalism let's at least have like a corrupt patronage capitalism where everybody can wet their beak a little bit you know i have good news for you fellows um i believe that spirit is very much alive in the department of correction oh which um to my mind is very much a um a pre-progressive era agency um I mean, you talk about all the reasons for why that is <clears throat> in your excellent book, Captives, which we're going to talk about more. But expand a little bit on that. What is it about the DOC and the maybe the Correction Officers Union that keeps that spirit alive? Yeah, well, they haven't done a land acknowledgement. That's one way that they're not progressive. But we'll work on that. We'll work on that. Well, an important part of the progressive era was um, placing city agencies under the control of civilian experts versed in the social sciences, um, urban planning, um, medicine. And Captives is very much the story of how the progressive attempt to take over the Department of Correction failed. Um, And in the process, paved the way to the Rikers Island that we know today. Um, And something that I go into in great detail is how much of the infrastructural expansion that enabled Rikers to become the penal colony that it is today was actually undertaken by progressives who thought that Rikers would be this uh, world-renowned center of um, humanistic penology, rehabilitation, and all the rest of it, um, including actually the bridge um, which connected Rikers to the land. Um, and the, the what happened instead was the the, the guards, the rank-and-file guards of the DOC were able to successfully repel uh, progressivism and to establish what is effectively um, military control of a large piece of real estate in New York with one entrance um, uh, that they have locked down. So maybe all is not well in uh, in the, the pre-progressive world. Maybe... Um, Private tyranny, maybe even, uh, I don't know, corrections and police unions might be part of the problem here. Yeah, I'm just looking at just news that came out today, and this episode will come out in a couple weeks. It looks like uh, Eric Adams, Boss Adams. Boss Adams, Emperor Adams. Um, is now trying to put more budget for correction officers and doing what one judge has called a reset in all of the reforms on Rikers, which I didn't even know there were any reforms going through, <laughs> yeah. but... Apparently now we're going even farther back. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the situation at Rikers, it got some press last year, but that press has kind of gone away, and it's apparently still as bad or getting worse. But we got to understand that bad and worse is just like the, the whole history of Rikers 
And all the solutions to close it, to replace it, to make it better have already been tried and failed. And that's what this book is really about. Yeah. And that's what's, I think, very, very powerful about the book. Um, it's Jared, you did a great job. It's very compelling, very good. Excellent history. Kind of brings the broad sweep of the history of uh, New York City in the 20th century to, to bear on um, something that up until very recently was like a hot topic. I mean, I don't think it's very, um, I don't think it's overblown to say that the whole Adams mayoralty itself is in some sense a reaction to the sort of uh, anti-policing, anti-carceral social movements that we saw, we've seen for decades, but really saw explode a couple summers ago. I completely agree. Um, and uh, I talk about this in the introduction to the book, but this book was very much produced by the historical moment between the Ferguson Rebellion in 2014 and the campaign um, to close Rikers, which came to a head in 2019. I wrote some ba basic edits and um, a short introduction in the aftermath of the George Floyd Rebellion, but already it's seeming like this book was produced in a different time. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, the, um, the number one difference is that today, actually, the possibility for even a modicum of reform, if it ever existed, um, is that door is closing. Um, and Adams represents a kind of revanchist character par excellence, um, on par with someone like Ed Koch, um, who is just speaking to the, um, the enduring power of the, the Law and Order Coalition and the enduring popularity of the idea that New York and the the larger society of which it is a part ought to be run with brute force um, and winner takes all and all the rest of the cliches. But, uh, before we get to Koch, let's go back to the era of social democratic New York, the New Deal New York era, the Wagner administration. <laughs> Wagner. Yeah, the flight of the Valkyries, which was industry moving out of New York City in the post-war <laughs> era. <laughs> uh, yeah, fucking, I, I, as, a, as a former student of Joshua B. Freeman, author of Working Class New York, I particularly appreciated the subtle shade thrown at the concept of New York as a social democratic polity, as he called it. Not even subtle shade. Uh, you point out through the course of this book the ways in which the sort of New Deal progressive order, New Deal and progressive order, because these are two slightly different things, create uh, a sort of, um, yeah, like a uh, municipal welfare state that, of course, is riven by all the contradictions of class society. Seems to us like a halcyon day to look back at the city with all the jobs out in the post-war period, all the way up until the crisis of uh, financial crisis of 74. But all along, like the acids of those contradictions are working through this. And your book is particularly good in showing how all of the the, the massive geopolitical and economic changes that are happening around this country and especially in New York City uh, all are, can be kind of filtered through or at least can be seen very clearly in the way that New York City has traditionally dealt with uh, its lumpen proletariat at the lower end of the spectrum of the working class, certainly the black and brown working class in this city, and how even at like the glory moment of you know the FDR, the the uh, LaGuardia and FDR uh, New 
New Deal and the Wagners of the world coming in and progressive reforming and liberaling and all that shit, uh, it was still a very, very dark time. I'm glad you noticed that. Um, Freeman's book is obviously canon. I learned a great deal from it, as have an entire generation of historians. Um, and that's both a good and a bad thing. Uh, I think that we really need to revisit the rosy nostalgia at the center of working class New York. I mean, you can get lost in this fantasy of the social democratic polity. And you know, it's, at certain points I was reading working class New York and thinking, wow, what a great time to be alive. Why would anybody have been against capitalism? <laughs> what grievances could people possibly have had with the state at this point? Um, and then you start to read um, what a lot of civil rights leaders were saying uh, and what black militants were saying, right? And the growing number of unemployed workers, what they had to say about the system. And it turns out, you know, that this post-war period of prosperity, which by the way, more time has gone by since it ended than it lasted, mm -hmm. um, wasn't so great to begin with. And the fact that we can wax nostalgic about working class New York tells us more about the sorry state that we're in today than it does about how great it was to live in New York after World War II. Yeah, I think this gets us to the, uh, the commissionership of Anna M. Cross. Anna M. Cross, a pivotal figure in this book, a reformer, a big P progressive. Somebody trying to get in and sweep away the muck of old Tammany Hall and the old DOC and try to bring humanistic social science bearing to what is otherwise a miserable institution. So, yeah, the book begins with a depiction of a riot, one of the many depictions of a prisoner riot. And there's also guard riots and police riots uh, throughout the book, which makes it very fun. But a riot at the uh, House of uh, Women's Detention. Um, in 1954, and this is around the same time that Cross comes in, and she looks at this riot and says, I basically agree with the prisoners. This prison's terrible. We have to do better. And so the rest of her commissionership, which lasts until, I believe, the early 70s, is her trying to reform the prison system, trying to make it more humane, trying to make it more rational. Um, so what was her plan in general when she comes in in 5354. For the cinema buffs out there, I would say that the narrative follows roughly the arc of Agira the Wrath of God. <laughs> um, and it begins with the search for El Dorado. And as far as Cross was concerned, jails could be repurposed as agents of social good. There's this wonderful quote where she says that, you know, we could use jails to reform the warped human beings among us, but unfortunately jails are not being used properly. So this is someone who really believed that human caging could have a progressive function. Now, what function did she have in mind, right? Cross was, in a lot of ways, an unorthodox figure. She was probably what we would call today a, a liberal or a left liberal, but she wasn't a radical. Um, she was a part of a long tradition that believed that a variety of social service institutions needed to serve the purpose of humanely molding 
working class people into docile and law-abiding laborers. And there's a long history of progressive reformers before Cross um, who revolutionized uh, city and state agencies with the explicit purpose of taking large populations of European immigrants and recently freed slaves and disciplining them to live in accordance with the dictates of modern urban life, which means keep a tidy home, send your kids to school, men don't take your paycheck and disappear for three days in the bar, right? You need to learn how to budget your money. Really just um, domesticating um, workers uh, who were not used to basing their lives around the clock. Um, and so Cross was, in a lot of ways, an anachronistic figure, popping up as she did in 1954 with all of these ideas. Um, and she was not the first. Um, Rikers had been, the penitentiary at Rikers had been established uh, in the 1930s by uh, similarly-minded reformers. Um, the Rikers had been purchased by the city in the 1880s with the same intent. Um, and Cross coming to power in the 1950s, and this is why I chose to spend so much time on Cross, represented to my mind the best shot that this wager ever had in the United States. Um, New York City was riding the wave of post-war prosperity. Uh, city coffers were overflowing with money destined for social spending. The mayor that appointed uh, Cross, Wagner, um, you know, who one social scientist remarked that he he benefited from two things. Right, for uh, first of all, the Irish could assume that he was one of them, and so could the Germans, right? Um, and also, his father was the famous Robert Wagner Sr., and a lot of people voted for him because they thought he was his dad. <laughs> uh, but he very much proposed. Um, a new paradigm of Keynesian governance in New York City that he called the New Deal for New York, attempting to replicate the New Deal governing coalition, right, which legalized trade unions and brought uh, labor leaders, so-called labor leaders, into the fold um, in order to neutralize labor conflict um, and govern based on a kind of consensus wrought by um, reasonable affluence for workers, right? Wagner um, tried to replicate this in New York, and to a large extent, um, he succeeded, um, at least in the short term, um, by, with large investments in the public sector, in schools, in hospitals, in housing. Um, the, the size of the municipal workforce exploded. Um, as, you, as your listeners probably know, this was a particularly important time for black and brown workers because um, discrimination is more difficult in the public sector than it is in the private sector. There's a lot more oversight, um, and the the private sector is a lot more accountable um, to, in particular, uh, politicians from black and brown majority areas. So this was actually a time of relative prosperity and social advancement for black and brown workers who found municipal work. And so all of this was going on, um, and Anna Cross was one small part of this, and representing as she did this idea that jails could be repurposed as a part of this Keynesian governance model, um, Cross really took what I consider to be the most serious 
um, steps toward realizing this proposition that anyone has taken in the United States. And so the book is basically the story of what happened next. And of course, you know, bringing this to the present, then this kind of lays down a gambit for um, police reformers and police abolitionists today, because, uh, you know, it's sobering to think that at the height of all of this sort of reformist fervor, what, 70 fucking years ago, 65, 70 years ago, uh, even at that point, it didn't it didn't it didn't end up being possible. And I think another important point to make, um, and I got this um, not only from reading the archives, but also uh, the criminologist David Garland makes this point very well, um, is that prior to the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, the question of crime, punishment, um, criminal justice, so on, these were not political issues. Um, in the way that they are today. Um, there was a remarkable bipartisan consensus around how society dealt with crime. Um, and so politicians weren't uh, constantly trying to outflank each other to be tough on crime. Um, even the, the most um, conservative voices in the 1950s and 1960s on questions of incarceration would probably be in league with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren today. Um, the country has moved so far to the right. Um, and in particular, an entire governing coalition, um, the, the Law and Order uh, Coalition, has congealed, bringing together organized labor in uh, policing and corrections with hard right politicians um, and uh, white revanchists um, to form a very powerful kind of political power block. And in the 1950s, this didn't exist. Because it is, it was then, <clears throat> excuse me, as it is now, because I think we're living through, is it a second backlash or a third backlash or fourth or fifth backlash that we're in at this present moment in 2022? I mean, the original backlash where a lot of this language comes from, and as you said, this coalition comes together, is of course in the late 60s and early 1970s. As you talk about in your book, this backlash um, had its own coalition and had its own funders and backers because, of course, as you mentioned in the book, the John Birch Society, you know, the arch revanchist, the arch anti-communists, funded, of course, directly by capital, were able to um, coordinate alongside the Correction Officers Union to create essentially like a astroturfed movement, we can call it, similar to like a Tea Party or something like that. And so through the course of your book, um, you see the formation of a kind of backlash politics that not only do we still live with to this day, but that is it really feels like it's in the forefront, especially when you're talking about law and order, crime, prisons, and whatnot. No, I completely agree. Um, and actually, something that I do want to emphasize um, about the formation of this kind of law and order coalition is that the Birchers were, of course, involved and this is something that I, I really got obsessed with, actually, and wrote, ended up writing a separate article. Um, it's in an academic journal, so none of you will ever see it. Um, but with this great colleague and comrade named Tyler Wall, who was one of the authors of uh, Police, a Field Guide for Verso. Um, and John Birch was able to help lay the foundation nationwide for this movement of activist rank-and-file cops. 
that became basically the original prototype for uh, Blue Lives Matter. It was called uh, the Committee to Support Your Local Police. But they were aided considerably by the, um, I hate to say it, fellas, but the self-activity of uh, rank-and-file uh, police officers around the country. I call it dark operismo. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a central figure of, um, of the story of captives. Uh, the, this is um, the, the political organization of the right around questions of, uh, of crime and punishment. Um, it was not simply imposed um, on um, working people by politicians like Richard Nixon. Um, it was actually produced in large part by the everyday activity of cops and jail guards who pushed against um, the, the procedural revolution of the Warren Court, um, who pushed against uh, campaigns for civilian oversight and policing, who pushed against people like Anna Cross, who thought that prisons ought to be run by civilians and not by uniformed guards. And all of these struggles on the local level um, interfaced in a very important way with the national movement. And the national movement would have been nothing without them. Yeah, so the book has some, like I said, um, really moving and horrifying, but also inspiring stories of prisoner uprisings, but it's also got these wildcat actions by prison guards and police. And uh, it's a really interesting tension in the book because you know, you're, you're writing about Rikers from an abolitionist perspective. Um, and a lot of abolitionists tend to talk about the police and prison guards as if there's something other than workers. Like, how can they be a worker if they're so cruel and so, uh, you know, do so much harm to other workers and break strikes and stuff like that? And you sort of treat them differently. It's like, they are workers. They act, we can theorize their activity as workers, but they're particularly... Uh, reactionary class fraction serving in in this uh, essential way the reproduction of society or the restructuring of society that we could easily call neoliberalism or something like that. You quote C.L.R. James is talking about some like worker struggle we would all admire. You're like, well, the same thing is true of what these cops are doing, which is just, just you know. a sidebar. It's great to read a, a, a critical history of prison and have it be C.L.R. James quotes and not Foucault quotes. Sorry to all the Foucault listener lovers out there, but it's it's good to see this given the critical Marxist perspective. Hashtag read C.L.R. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really glad you picked up on this, um, and I've gotten some some flack from this. Um, you know, just in casual conversations, and I'm sure someone will write a grumpy and hilarious review of the book. Please do it. Um, but I think that uh, if you read um, the considerable body of memoir or interviews uh, by and with correction officers, and you read about their working conditions and the communities that they come from and how they relate to the jobs that they do, it's very clear that this is a fucking job. It's a it's a it's a job, and they relate to it as um, as a pretty sweet city job, especially if you're coming from um, a highly segregated, divested working class community of color, which is by now where the majority of Rikers guards come from. Um, this is your ticket um, to social mobility. I mean, you can make uh, six figures in your early 20s as a correction officer in New York. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I, I teach now in a criminal justice program, and um, some of my students um, want to go into corrections or work in corrections. And um, 
you know, the, the lion's share of them do not relate to it in any kind of ideological way. I think that comes later. Um, for the time being, it's a, it's, it's a very solid and reliable job. In New York City, they, they call it your 20-year sentence. Um, you, you work for 20 years and you can retire at a high percentage of your pension. And basically, you know, you can be in your 40s, retired, not have to worry about money for life, and just go into, go into something else. One of these law and order ancillary fields, like you can do security, or you can just, or you can buy a boat and live in the boat. You can do whatever you want. It's a working class dream. Um, and so I think if if you abandon the the moral definition of what a worker is, um, and you look at um, what a CEO does and what a cop does. And you think about it as this is a this is a job that working class people do, and they relate to it the same way that uh, other working class people relate to their jobs. That it actually helps you understand a lot why these uh, these workforces are so fucked up, and also why they can't be reformed. Uh, because if you think about, for example, um, the persistent demand among correction officers at Rikers Island. Uh, more important than wages and benefits and overtime and all the rest of it is. They want complete control over how they deal with prisoners. Um, and in particular, their ability to mete out as much violence as they see fit um, in any situation. And to avoid any situation where they have to explain themselves for their use of violence. And this is, um, th this is troubling but I think it's really important um, when I when you read the stories, uh, as you said, of these uh, corrections officers in your book um, and you understand uh, Rikers as like this important site of not just struggle, but also of labor. You see that um, for us politically, we can say, well, DOC workers, you know, if you're in the PBA, if you're a cop, you're outside of the working class. But when you go down to the granular level where the sort of ideas and ideologies um, of uh, these uh, corrections officers and cops are being created, it is literally a labor process. And this uh, autonomy over the labor process, I hate to say it, is part and parcel of the larger story of American labor. This is this is it, it's dark. It's dark operismo, but this could be a story about iron puddlers in the late 19th century, told in the McGovery book about trying to keep their 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 trade knowledge, try to keep their autonomy on the job, control the actual you know the the, the site where their labor is being produced and reproduced. And before your listeners have a fucking conniption. Um let me finish by saying there is a key difference in these occupations, uh, police and correction officer in particular, which is unlike iron puddlers, the raw material that they're working on um, is human life right. and are human beings. And their labor process is the exertion of violence. And what they're producing is prisoners. Exactly. And they're reproducing class relations in the process. So I think the reason why I said it's it's helpful to think about these jobs as working class jobs because it helps us understand why they can't be reformed is precisely this. Um, the guards cannot relate to, human, to their prisoners as human beings. It's actually, um, it's inherently opposed to their, their quest for autonomy over their labor conditions. Um, treating uh, prisoners with dignity Following prisoners, uh, following prisoners' rights, respecting prisoners' rights, um, 
diffusing conflict without recourse to, you know, to violence, to the chemical spray, to calling in the emergency services unit, right? All of these things that would lead to more humane uh, situation at Rikers would also make the job a lot more difficult. And in the eyes of the guards, I don't know if this is true or not, it would make their job a lot more dangerous. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it's um, a very important ideological figure among cops and guards that basically they're going every day into the jungle, right? Um, and this is, you know, it's obviously racialized language. It's also language that has to do with the fact that many cops and guards, thanks to the repeal of the Lyons Law in the 1960s, are not required to live in New York City proper. So it's like the movie Copland. You know, they come, they come to the city and they think about the city basically as, um, as hostile territory. Like, and you know, if you add to the fact that by this point in history, a lot of them have military experience in places where they were surrounded by people they perceived to be the enemy. Um, you see that their objective is to go into this dangerous place and to, to get out in one piece. And they think basically, I, sh I should be able to do anything that I deem necessary to get out of this situation in one piece. And that's how they conceptualize um, their relationship to the prisoners. And so basically, um, I think the takeaway from this should not be, oh, we should cut the guards slack because they're workers and all the rest of it. No, that's bullshit. Um, I think we should say that guards relate to their jobs the same way that most working class people relate to their jobs, except in the case of guards, they are doing jobs that shouldn't exist. Damn straight. Cosmic greetings, everybody. Antifada producer Andy here with a special tour announcement. I will be traveling the country to celebrate the two-year anniversary of my book, I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, a.k.a. The Green Book, available from Pluto Books, in conjunction with my essay, Mass Politics and the Spirit of May 28th, available at sm28.org. So this is a tour where half the dates will be at bookstores talking about The Green Book, and the other half will be at Radical Spaces. And I'm hoping to meet a lot of Antifada listeners and introduce them to some of the local projects that I really believe in and care about around the country. So listen closely because here's the dates. New Orleans, May 5th at Metalworks. Tucson, Arizona, May 9th at BCC, the Blackledge Community Collective. Stories Books in Echo Park, Los Angeles, May 11th with friend of the show Anna Merlan. Tamarack Bar and Restaurant. Saturday, May 14th in Oakland, California. The SJAC Community Center in Portland, Oregon. Monday, May 16th. Third Place Books in Seattle. That's the Ravenna location on May 20th. I think I'll be talking with uh, Phil from Red May. May 23rd, we'll be at the Landing Strip Community Garden in Minneapolis. Hopefully the weather will be nice. And finally, Pills and Community Books in Chicago on May 27th with Jared Shanahan. I'm going to post all those details on my Twitter, and I'll probably post an update throughout the month if any of the dates change, but hope you can make it out to some of those dates. You sort of portray them as the front line of this class struggle that was like kind of set up by right-wing politicians in the neoliberal era to turn the more middle working class against the lower working class and underclass. I think you were referred to James Boggs and Facing Reality, talking about how in the 60s, automation and these other factors produced these large numbers or increasing numbers of outcast people. 
heavily racialized in the United States, of course. And so these people have to be warehoused and disciplined and and as, certainly as social services cut in the 70s, parts of the, the city burning down. Yeah, and, and I might add, too, that what happens in New York City in 1974, 1975, along with Chile <laughs> you know, a few years before that, is a trial run for what we understand as neoliberalism. So this is happening in the United States maybe a half a decade, I'm sorry, in New York, maybe a half a decade after this sort of political formation, this economic formation starts to spread through the city, through the country. Yeah, rather. and so the narrative that, uh, a convenient narrative for this is that, oh, look at uh, these criminals taking over the city. We have to do something. Let's put them all on an island. And at the same time, the funds for beautiful social democratic prison that Cross was building are being slashed. And there's a scene where her and Lindsay are cutting the ribbon on a new uh, a new building there. And they're both just deeply ashamed of what they've done because they thought they were building this like utopian prison islands, like the same way that uh, de Blasio and the progressive politicians today talk about the new pr jails that are going to replace Rikers. I think that if we're going, to, we're going to learn any lesson from the success of the Law and Order Coalition in the late 60s and early 70s, um, and this might be obvious to your listeners, but we're in a similar moment, and it's not the same, but it's a similar moment where the world is changing in a lot of subtle ways um, that are nonetheless felt very viscerally in daily life. Um, and, you know, if you got together, you know, 10 people from all different political persuasions, probably just about the only thing that they could all agree on is that things are changing in a way that I don't like. And this was a very common sentiment um, in the 1960s in New York. Um, and I think that victory went to the political coalition that was able to successfully define what was wrong and to propose solutions. Now, I mean, we know that this is easier for people who have the color line on their side, right? I mean, if you were, if you were cutting with the grain of the color line, American politics can be very easy for you. And we saw this with Trump, actually, who came along five years ago and basically repeated all the same shit that the politicians were saying when he was a kid. And lo and behold, it fucking worked again, right? Uh, but I think that something that they really did well, and this is this is obviously the, the strong suit of populists, is they were able to appeal to this sense of things are going in the wrong direction. And the real tragedy, actually, is if you look at what was actually happening in the mid to late 1960s, the post-war boom was winding down. It was part of a global crisis of capitalist profitability that continues to the present. Um, American um, institutions that had been built up by the New Deal and the Great Society were starting to decay. Uh, black workers were uh, migrating to the north in search of employment at the exact time when it was drying up. Um, there were a lot of very serious world historical phenomena un unfolding, and the, um, the right-wingers basically successfully blamed all of this on the most powerless people in our society. And it's all about individual criminals in the cities. Urban crime, urban crime, urban crime. That was the name that they gave to this just stunning 
uh, panoply of uh, social change. Uh, well, maybe we can switch to the other side of the bars now and talk about what life was and continues to be like for the inmates. It seems like these were the parts of the book that you really enjoyed writing, was like the escapes and the prisoner uprisings. Um, why don't you just tell some of those stories or um, you know, some thoughts on what it was like resisting this kind of brutality? Sure. Well, the first documented escape that I found from Rikers Island uh, seems to have been by the first people who were ever locked up there. In the 1890s, the city quarantined um, a small group of men who they uh, believed to have leprosy. They stuck them on Rikers Island, which at this time was a tiny little 90-acre sliver of land. And they, these men promptly swam to the shore. Um, and that inaugurated um, a tradition of regular escapes from Rikers that continued well into the 1980s. Did anyone catch leprosy from them escaping? I was not able to find You that. didn't find the New York Post article about that? They didn't swim as far as the East River, so they didn't get <laughs> leprosy. <laughs> they had more leprosy by the time they got out. So I did everything I could um, to document as much resistance as I could find in the archives. And this ranged from individual acts of escape um, to these mass prisoner um, rebellions, and then to the more day-to-day -day tactics that prisoners use to resist the dehumanizing situation that they're thrown into by taking care of each other, by not shitting on each other. Um, the the way that the power arrangement works in a lot of prisons um, and jails is that the the guards actually rely on predation among prisoners. Um, you know, I remember this from when I used to work as a mover. You know, when you're the boss, the first thing you do is you just put somebody else in charge, and just so you can be left alone. Um, and that's what a lot of guards do. Um, they put the biggest, toughest prisoner in the whole house in charge, and they just kick back, and they just let the jail manage itself. Um, and sorry to cut you off, but maybe someday you guys will get a bonus episode of Jared and I telling stories from when we were movers together. That might be kind of fun. Not today. Not today. We have more serious subjects, but that could be good. A moving story. <laughs> yeah, we really do all know each other. <laughs> um, and so I tried my best to capture um, the resistance. And the, the resistance was the, the most powerful... Um, when there was the most uh, revolutionary political organization in the New York City working class. Um, and that was, I, I would say, peaked in the year 1970 with the massive citywide jail rebellion, um, which was undertaken by um, a kind of ad hoc coalition of Black Panthers, Young Lords, uh, Nation of Islam, and then a whole lot of just ordinary working class people who were just sick of being locked up in these shitty jails. And, and it, was, it was a real uh, stunning uh, achievement. Um, now the flip side of this is, and this is, this is a, t a touchy subject and people get emotional about it and I understand it, but um, prisons and jails are very repressive environments. Uh, and a lot of times... Um, Either resistance is not possible, or quite frankly, it's doomed. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, prison rebellion stories that I can think of that have happy endings. There's one in the book 
that they kind of win. Shockingly, their demands are met. But then, like, it, you know, it gets cycled back into this, uh, oh, that that's what led to um, the bridge blockade, right? Oh, yes, yes. There was, like, a, a stick-up among state readies. So that was in the late 80s? Yeah. Yeah. But so, I mean, and so I'm not saying that, that prisoners can't struggle and win. I mean, of course, that's not true. Uh, but on a long enough timeline, right, I mean, it's, it, um, these efforts are pushing against considerable organized violence that has a sanction of the law. So, I mean, I, I feel that as a historian, I have to be responsible um, in making it very clear that um, the prisoners, I hate to spoil the ending of the book, but the prisoners do not come out on top of this story. So, I mean, why do you think that happens? Like, if the guards have so much power, if the, the, the prisoners are so outgunned, like, they know the story of Attica or whatever similar case, why, do you, why is there still this kind of resistance? Well, there is a culture um, within um, Rikers, and I've spoken a lot recently to uh, David Campbell, who I know is, uh, was on your show, um, who spent a year in, um, in the, the sentence facility for men fairly recently. And there is a culture of uh, direct action, um, and most of which actually the, the, the stories don't get told. Um, the, he wrote this great article um, called Stick Up on Rikers Island, and we published it on Hardcrackers. And it's the story of him and a few of his friends there organizing um, what's called a stick-up, which is basically like a strike um, in a few of the houses in the early days of COVID when the guards were basically telling them, oh, it's just the flu, um, it's bullshit, you don't have to worry about COVID. They weren't giving them any PPE. They weren't allowing them to social distance. They were locking up sick prisoners um, in the general population with everybody else. Um, and so he organized, um, yeah, what's called a stick-up. We're not going anywhere. Um, you know, it's not it's not exactly a dorm occupation like like they did throughout you know the book, um, but it's it's nonetheless an effective action because uh, Rikers is so bureaucratic that the guards have to bring the prisoners to the cafeteria or it generates all kinds of paperwork and it's, it becomes a liability and right it's like it's almost like having a brutal prison that's also run like a corporation is pretty much the worst of all worlds it's like robocop warned us um but anyway um i was talking to him about this and i said man this is such an such an amazing story you know and he said honestly dude it happens all the time like people stick up all the time, um, and it's just kind of a, it's a, it's a tradition, kind of akin to what um, E.P. Thompson talked about uh, in the making of the English working class. It's like customary right. It's like there's like a certain standard of treatment that prisoners expect, and if they're not getting it, um, they're willing to um, undertake direct action. And I think maybe. Um, it's helpful to think about it as just this constant struggle, and it's the prisoners you know, who stick up, don't think that the story is going to end with them, like, getting out, right, or taking over the jail and executing the guards or whatever. Um, but it's just this constant push and pull that, that constitutes uh, the culture of these facilities where, you know, your um, prisoners and guards are kind of locked in together and they have to negotiate throughout the day how these power dynamics play out. 
I mean, it's I guess it's also akin to to the sort of like um, low intensity back and forth and struggles that you see on every single job place, you know, not just in New York City, but through the country and around the world. Right. There's something about, you know, the, the structures and the relationships therein that engenders um, a, a necessity for collective direct action in certain instances. And just like when we we can only kind of guess using maybe Bureau of Labor Statistics, the level of militancy within the class, something like the Great Resignation happens you know, like six months ago, and only a few months from then can we be like 4.6 million workers just like left their jobs. What's going on with that? This is like I think a fundamental problem with – uh, or, or an impediment to, to us understanding the world is that so much of this sort of stuff that Jared's talking about and stuff that are things that are happening in other conflictual sites of struggle uh, in, in our world uh, don't make it to us. We don't have a conveyor belt in order to, to understand what's actually happening within the class, within the walls of the prison and so forth. I'm just going to see it trending on Twitter or something like that. I try to make it trend on Twitter, but I can't. You guys might know what I'm talking about, but I remember this article I read a lot of years ago about this researcher who went and found a bunch of people who fought in the French Resistance. Um, and please, if one of your listeners knows what I'm talking about, tweet it, because I've been looking for it forever. Um, and what this researcher found was that actually the vast majority of the people who did it did not think about it as a pivotal event in their life. Mm. It was just something that they did when they were in a bad situation. And then when it was over, they were happy to move on. And, oh, let me show you this picture of my granddaughter. You know, let me show you this uh, addition I put on my house, right? Uh, and I think as politicos, that's almost heresy to us because, you know, we, we love to relive the glory days of, you know, Occupy and BLM and all the the, the student occupations. And it's, those are, like, the greatest moments yeah, we can... especially us. Yeah, like the people who are still in this shit. Yeah, and, like, um, but I think a lot of people, like... Who have, who have cycled through, you know, prisons and jails, you know, in New York, a lot of the people that you ride the, the train with, you know, have been a part of these kinds of political actions and might not consider it as part of anything bigger than just, you know, this, yeah, well, the CO was, was acting up and we had to show them that we weren't going to take that, right? Um, and, I mean, it, it might be kind of frustrating uh, to think that people are always struggling and they're not conceptualizing it within this broader framework, but also it's pretty beautiful to think that these struggles are going on all the time yeah and i suppose maybe i'm not sure how we're doing with time at this point but maybe this is a good entryway into starting to think about maybe what some of the present day political ramifications for this are because you know we we we're, we're admitting now that there's this sort of like constant push and pull and back and forth that direct action and collective action is part of the history of prisons and obviously the reality of prisons today just as it is in the workplace the question is how do like various sort of spontaneous moments potentially turn into something larger than that, potentially turn into something political. Does it require a party? Does it require an electoral force? Does it require a, um, uh, a, sol a, a soldiers and workers and prisoners uh, workers council or something like that? Like, I, I know it's a big question, but you probably have some thoughts on that. 
We need to get Bitcoin to tank, and then Eric Adams will get red-pilled and become a communist, and he will be our leader. <laughs> I love it, man. That is one of the advantages of having our first crank mayor. The guy is such like a, a bizarre fucking weirdo with so many bizarre eccentricities. You know, we're, we're only probably like a, a few um, stock market crashes away from maybe bringing him on board. I don't know. Well, in the past, when the question of conditions within prisons have been raised— it's usually either the, the penal welfareists taking up the left-wing position, saying we need to make prisons nicer or more rehabilitative or something like that, or it's the NIMBYs saying, no, I'm against the prison being in my neighborhood, just on an island somewhere. Now there's the abolitionist position, which has become so mainstream, I think since Black Lives Matter uh, and the story of Khalif Browder and, and Laylene Polanco coming out, that people who are, are beginning to look at this more realistically, which is just like, we can't reform this. Yeah. And, um, and that position has become so mainstream that you get progressive politicians like Bill de Blasio and New York City City Council members and leaders of NGOs like the Ford Foundation using that rhetoric, saying that they're abolitionists, but of course they're not, they are just doing the same thing Anna M. Cross did. So what do you think of this more sincere abolitionist movement? Do you think it's got some potential to actually reverse course on this uh, endless cycle of more and more prisons? Oh, of course. I'm immensely excited about it. Um, 2020 was was just a wonderful time. I mean, it's it, obviously COVID was, was a terrible catastrophe, and it revealed this kind of low-scale degradation of life that had been going on in American society for decades, right? But the summer of 2020 was just was just a beautiful time to be alive and to witness just such courage and tenacity among so many people who probably had not thought about themselves as political actors even a week prior. Um, and the, the, the mainstreaming of abolition in such a short amount of time really demonstrates to me um, what a small group of dedicated political agitators can do uh, if they just keep at it. I mean, the, the, the big guns of American abolitionism have been at it for a very long time. Um, and to my mind, they won the day in the summer of 2020. Now, I think as you point out, suddenly everyone's an abolitionist, right? Just how like it's suddenly in 2016 or whatever, everyone was a socialist and and in reality, just about everyone's actually a Democrat, but that's fine. Um, people are saying they're abolitionists, um, and I think we need to take them seriously. Um, I, I think that something that's important that I think can be done in this moment, now that unfortunately these, um, these politics are largely being hashed out in the realm of ideas, as opposed to, you know, the streets... Um, something that we can do is attempt to flesh out what exactly abolition means. Because I think that there is a popular trend of American abolitionism that imagines that we can abolish the police and the prison system within American capitalism. We can simply change these facets of American capitalism uh, remedy them with some kind of Keynesian redistribution plan um, and society can transition to this more humane world in a peaceful way. I think that that's a very suspicious proposition. And effectively, 
postulates that if the movement protests enough and makes enough compelling arguments, the ruling class is going to redistribute considerable wealth and power downward, like the Grinch when little Cindy Lou Who says, why did you steal our presents? And his heart grows three sizes and he gives them back. <laughs> Follow up to that. <laughs> so a lot of the abolitionists, although they are a bit more realistic, like I said, about what prisons are to do with them, which is get rid of them, than the progressives that are just kind of like lying about it. Their proposal is also that like we use the money that we're going to spend on building new jails and spend it on like social service programs and stuff like that. So, I mean, is that really getting to the root of the problem? Like it's a better idea, of course. If I could jump in and Jared, I'm, I'm going to let you answer that. But I mean, you see, I think you know, the contradictory nature of this solution all the way back in 1954. You see it back in the Anna Cross days, right? You see all the, you know, you see a class society, despite the seeming prosperity, riven by by various contradictions and conflicts. Uh, you see the prison not as, as a separate sphere of activity, uh, a separate sphere of work and a separate sphere of incarceration, but instead is like completely implicated in and also implicated by uh, the society in which it arises. Um, something like prisons, something like police is absolutely necessary in a, in a society built on private property. Um, Jared, continue my thought. <laughs> um, I think this is an excellent point, and... I think about it in terms of how you communicate these ideas to skeptical people. Because one of the unfortunate parts of abolitionism is um, you have a lot of people with really good ideas politically who spend a whole lot of time on social media talking to other people who agree with them. Um, and only in episodic moments of campaigns, like the great campaign we had in New York, No New Jails. Um, do um, you see large numbers of abolitionists interfacing with ordinary working class people? And I think it's an unfortunate tendency of American abolitionists to assume that their ideas are very popular, um, especially in communities of color. And I have seen very little evidence that that's true. Um, now, certain aspects of abolitionism mean everybody should have a better life. Everybody should have access to, you know, good uh, quality education and healthcare and all the rest. These are very popular issues. These are bread and butter uh, Bernie issues, right, that poll very highly for education, right? Um, but then when you get around to saying, and we need to get rid of the prisons and police, um, I'm afraid to say that um, there's a long history um, in the United States of uh, working class communities of color uh, effectively demanding more police um, and stricter penalties um, against uh, the people who commit antisocial acts. Um, you know that you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, James Foreman has a great book about it, Locking Up Our Own. Michael Javin Fortner has a great book about it, The Black Silent Majority. Um, and this is not a moralistic argument, right? Um, the communities of color hit the hardest by uh, disinvestment and segregation have always been stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, you know, and when, when the state was being dismantled and stripped for parts in the 1970s, you know, the answer to rampant antisocial behavior in places like Harlem was more cops and stricter drug laws or literally nothing. 
right? Um, and so it's it's not hard to imagine why the so-called black middle class, what Fortner calls the black silent majority, embraced the Rockefeller drug laws, right? Which was of course supported by the NAACP at the time. Um, and so think about how you're going to communicate these issues to working class people. Foregrounding, for example, the idea that our communities already have all all that we need. You know, we keep us safe. We just need to get rid of the cops. I mean, I don't think that that is a factually accurate statement about a lot of working class communities. Um, it might be true um, in, um, in middle class communities, though I doubt it. But I think in places that have been thoroughly disinvested and that have been riven with high levels of unemployment um, and the disaster wrought by large scale incarceration. Think about how disruptive it is to have um, particularly uh, men missing from the lives of their families, of their children, from the community's life, whole generations of men locked away in cages. Um, the communities hit hardest by mass incarceration need a lot. They need a lot of resources. They need a lot of power. Um, so to say simply that, oh, they have all they need, what we need to do is get rid of the cops, I think you're not going to get by with anybody saying that. Um, so I think it's it's very important to be realistic um, about how we approach abolition as a political issue. And to my mind, it cannot be pursued in isolation. It needs to be undertaken as part of a program to transfer the, um, the division of wealth and power, the apportionment of wealth and power in society. And so this is where I would come up against um, the kind of liberal democratic tradition of abolitionism that seeks to work within um, city governments and, and woke politicians and enlightened judges and all the rest of it. Um, because this is Anna Cross. This is, this is, this is the progressive era. These are, these are the most sensitive and intelligent and ethical members of the ruling class who are invested in reproducing those class relations. And they are not going to give you their power. They will take care of you and help you find your way so they can feel better about themselves and they can write a book about how with all the great things they did for the working class, but they are not going to give you their power. Their power is something that you need to take. Damn. Maybe a good place to, to go into a bonus episode, episode after this. Um, Jared. Andy, thanks for setting this up with Jared. It was good to uh, actually see you in person and record with you in person. It was a great episode. Yeah, it's a great episode. It's a great book, Captives, How Rikers Took New York City Hostage from Verso Press, available now. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be on the show for the second time ever. <laughs>